If you have your Bible, open and find John 20. Again, um, thinking through John 20 this morning and the account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This, in, this chapter, in many respects, is the, is the, the high watermark of, of the gospel. Uh, it's at the end of this chapter uh, that John felt this is the right place for me to, to state what is my uh, purpose for writing this whole book. I would say that there's more than meets the eye in this, in this chapter. Um, so I want to go ahead and dive into it. So if you found your Bible... Uh, and you found John 20, let's, let's read it. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, and the, to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she, uh, as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. She did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, and they, that, that, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, 
it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. Oh, Lord, would you give us eyes to see the truth in these words. Eyes to see it. Would you give us minds to understand clearly what the Holy Spirit is saying through John. Would you give us hearts to embrace and love that which we see? Would you give us wills to obey whatever you lead us to do in response to this passage? Give me the help that I need to teach. Give us all ears to hear, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we already said, we're thinking about the resurrection this morning. John has a lot to tell us about it. Not everything there is to say about the resurrection, but a lot. Four things at least, okay? So if you're taking notes, here are the four things about the resurrection of Jesus Christ that I think John shows us here. Um, First, he gives us a picture of the resurrection, a picture of the resurrection. Just simply in these early verses, giving us an account of what happened. And, and I want to look, this is verses 1 to 13. In, in looking at these, I want us to not just see what happened, but also see all the ways that John assures us this is a trustworthy account. Not only that it happened, but you can believe it and have confidence in doing so. Secondly, John shows us a little bit at least of the purpose of the resurrection. Uh, verses 14 to 18 really his interaction with Mary Magdalene. Um, I want to see, pay particular attention to some of the details that we find there. Third, uh, John, John follows that in, in his description of Jesus' interaction with his disciples in the story of, of, of Thomas, excuse me, not, not quite yet, but just in, the, in his appearance to his disciples, verses 19 to 23, the product of the res- resurrection. You'll see how, and I'll explain what I mean by that, but you'll see how this follows out of what he just said to Mary. Finally, in the, in the uh, end of the chapter, verses 24 to the end of the chapter, his interaction with Thomas and, uh, and the other disciples, the promise of the resurrection. That's how we're going to make our way through this chapter, so let's 
It's a lot to get through, so let's dive in and think first about the picture of the resurrection that we have here. So for most of us, when we start reading this chapter, if you grew up in church especially, what John says in these early verses is just so utterly familiar to us. Uh, you know, at the very least, it's what when you go to the sunrise service or, or you know, on Easter Day, you know, you, that's the passage they read or one like it, and Mary goes to the tomb, he's, I see the stone, you know, just all, it's just, we're just so familiar with it, and because of that, sometimes we read these early verses, and we don't slow down enough to just see how astonishing and assuring they are to us in the truth of what's being described here. We're going to move through this quickly, but I want to focus in on these early verses, and I want to draw your attention to, don't be intimidated by this, five different things, five different things in this picture of the resurrection that affirm the truthfulness of what, has, what is being relayed here. First of all, just read, read verse 1 again. Let's look at verse 1. There it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. This is just going to be intuitive, but it's going to get to this first thing I want to explain to you. How does John know that? How does John know, this isn't a trick question, how does John know that Mary went to the tomb early and while it was still dark and the stone had been taken away from the tomb? How in the world does John know that? John wasn't there. He's not there in that verse. So how does he know what Mary Magdalene was doing even when he wasn't there? It's not a trick question. She told him, right? She told him what happened. And why point this out? Just to remind you, and this is the first thing I want to point out about this, that these, the simple fact that these gospel accounts are eyewitness testimony. They're eyewitness testimony. And that was the highest form in that day of historical reporting. And not just in that day, but to this day. To this day. We give weight to eyewitness testimony to this day. We value most highly, it's not always, not, well, we value most highly, in most cases, those things that we have seen with our own eyes. If you should, if you should relay a story to someone, and they say, I don't know if I believe that. And you say, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. You expect to be believed. You expect them to believe you. And if they don't believe you, that's on them. It's not on the truthfulness of what you're saying. Right? These are eyewitness. The same was true with these. These are eyewitness testimonies to the resurrection of Jesus. Secondly, to add to the trustworthiness of the eyewitness testimony that this represents, just note the, the, the details that we find here that just sound like the kinds of details you would get from someone who was there and saw it with their own eyes. In verses 4 and 5, John makes sure we know that he can run faster than Peter. In verse 6, John wants us to, to, to uh, make sure we know that Peter was a whole lot bolder than he was. And he went into the tomb first, even though John got there first. And then in verse 7, 
Just look at the description of the grave clothes. Most, it just points out, hey, most of the cloths were just laying there, but it specifically notes, not the face cloth, though, the one that Jesus wore on his head, it was kind of folded up, actually, and sitting somewhere else. I mean, who would make that up, right? In addition to those two things, just think thirdly about the brutal honesty of this passage. For one thing, we've already mentioned Mary Magdalene as an eyewitness, but the testimony of women in that day was discounted. Um, so if they were trying to make up a, a believable story in that day, they would have put Peter and John there first, not a woman, right? But brutal honesty. It's what happened. But for another thing, John doesn't even paint himself in a, in, 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 and the other disciples in, in the most positive light. He basically paints himself and the others as slow to understand, slow to believe. Mary Magdalene, even, assumes that Jesus... She didn't assume that he rose from the dead. She assumed somebody had taken his body away. She, didn't, she was slow to understand and believe. Even though Jesus had told her like a billion times before, I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. She didn't understand. That's not what she assumed. And when she went and told John and the, and the others, they, they ran and they didn't have any idea what happened. You would think that they were trying to make this story up and pass it off as, a, as something sensational, right? As sensational as they knew how to make it, they would have presented themselves going to, to, to the tomb that morning expecting him to be gone, just as he said he would, right? Knowing exactly why, not freaking out, not, not, not having uh, no idea what, what was going on. Those who make up stories don't pr typically paint themselves in a terrible light. But that's what you have here. It's true. But then in, in addition to it being eyewitness testimony, with eyewitness detail, with brutal self-humiliating honesty, you have the announcement of the angels. Okay? Just read verses 11 and 12 again. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look in, into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And, you know, they talked to her in verse 13. Just as an aside, quickly, I couldn't not read you this. Uh, Jim Hamilton, who teaches uh, at Southern Seminary in Louisville, has a commentary on John, and here's what he read about these two angels in the tomb. He said, It is as though the place where the body of Jesus was laid in the tomb has become the mercy seat in the most holy place, overshadowed by the cherubim on either side. Isn't that good? And he adds that if that's true, then Mary Magdalene has just gone into the most holy place where once only the high priest could go, and that but once a year. Oh, isn't that good? Anyway, it was to me. Um, but this angelic announcement also adds to the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of the account. Because in Matthew's gospel, just to, because we should see these gospels together, in Matthew's uh, gospel there are... Uh, angelic announcements about Jesus at the beginning of his life and then at the end of the resurrection. In Matthew chapter 1, the angels announce to, to Joseph and to Mary that the, the birth of Jesus and then again at the, at, and to the shepherds. And then uh, at, at his resurrection in Matthew chapter 28. So like angelic announcements book in the life of Jesus. Uh, which should tell you this, no one doubts that Jesus was born 
No one doubts that he, he, he came and he lived, right? So angels announced both. If, if the angel's announcement was true at his birth, it's true at his resurrection. Fifthly and finally, um, John reminds us that Scripture forever had said this. Um, note that phrase in verse 9, that they did not yet understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead, that he must. And then you, you read the book of Acts, which we don't have time to turn to, but when you read the book of Acts, you, you see just how much the light came on for them as to what the Scriptures had always said, especially the Psalms. You can, just, you can jot down these references and, and, and see all the quotations for yourself, but in Acts 2.27... They quote Psalm 16, verses 10 and 11 about the resurrection. In Acts 2, 34 and 35, they quote Psalm 110, verse 1, about the resurrection. In Acts 4, 9 through 12, they quote Psalm 118, verses 22 to 24, about the resurrection. Light came on. It always said it from the beginning. This is a picture of the resurrection that can be trusted. It's, it's, it's eyewitness testimony with eyewitness detail told with self-humiliating honesty announced by angels at his resur res resurrection just as at his birth and foretold from, for centuries in the Scriptures. All that in these utterly familiar verses. Pay attention to what you read. Slow down and just dwell on it. It'll astonish you all that's there. But if this picture of the resurrection is astonishing and assuring, just think caref carefully with me about the purpose of the resurrection and how John describes it here. So to begin seeing this, let's, let's zoom back in on Mary Magdalene. So there she is um, early, in the early morning around dawn, um, this is the second time coming. Peter and John had just been there. And when, uh, they realized that Jesus, when they realized that Jesus was not there anymore, they ran off to tell the others. But again, Mary stays. And verse 11 tells us Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And it's while she's doing that that the two angels appear to her. That's why she was crying. When she tells them she doesn't know where the body of Jesus has been taken, she turns around, and that brings us to verse 14. Look there. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but did not know who it was. Now, we don't know, we don't know why she didn't know it was him. It could have been really foggy, misty in the early mornings, and, and you know, have a hard time if you're not right up on somebody figuring out who it is. It could have been she was so distraught, just wasn't thinking clearly who it was. Um, or just remember like at the end of Luke's gospel when Jesus is walking on the road with the two, uh, two men on the road to Emmaus, and they are disciples of his. And they don't even, it, it literally says that they were divinely kept from recognizing him until he departed and they realized who they were talking to. It could have been something like that. Um, could have been for a number of reasons, but in any case, she didn't realize it was Jesus who was standing there. Who did she think it was, though? 
And it's here we need to think about the details. Look again at verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Supposing him to be the gardener. Some of you have heard me point this out before, but to some of you who haven't, this may be, it may seem like an insignificant tidbit, supposing him to be the gardener. But there isn't a wasted word in Scripture. And I believe there's a sense in which Mary was wrong and a sense in which she was absolutely right, right? Because clearly, in the literal sense, Jesus was not the gardener. Uh, But on the other hand, there is all the biblical reason in the world to realize that in the spiritual sense, that is exactly who he was. What does that mean? Let's leave John for just a second and take take a biblical journey. You don't have to turn it anywhere, but just think with me outside of John. When you, go, when, when you go all the way back to the beginning, in the early chapters of, of Genesis, where was in the, in the opening of Genesis, once man was created, where is all the action uh, centered? In a garden. He created man and placed him in the garden. That's the place that God had prepared for the the only ones in all creation who were created in his image, and that garden was like a divine sanctuary. Um, And God's presence was experienced there with Adam and Eve. In that perfect place that God himself had described as very good. And so in that garden that God had created, God placed a gardener, as it were. Right? Right? Adam was placed there in in, in the garden, as Genesis tells us, to work it and to keep it. To work and to keep it. He was the the gardener, the keeper um, of that garden. Not just in the sense of of weeding the place, if there even were weeds at that point, or digging around in the dirt, but of ordering his life in that garden in obedience to God's will and and design. That's how he was to keep it, right? That He was there as our representative, and he would either keep it in God's way, in obedience to him, or in his own way, in disobedience to him. And whichever he went, it affected not only him, but all people, because God had chosen to covenant with all people for all time through Adam. And we all know how the story went. Adam failed as the, as the gardener and the keeper in the Garden of Eden, and he was banished from that garden, kicked out of that garden, and from the presence of God. And because Adam was our representative, the effects and the consequences of his rebellion have fallen down and come down to all of us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, In Adam all die. He says in Romans 5, 12, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, comma, death spread to all men because all sinned. That verse does not say that death spread to all men because all sin, S-I-N, though that's true. But it says because all sinned, 
past tense. When? Because all sinned. All of us sinned. When? When Adam did. Right? He was there in our place. And so when he sinned, when he fell into sin, we fell into sin. We fell into those consequences. And the world and everything in it, including us, have been broken by sin. The first gardener plunged the world into that estate by his own rebellion against God. Now fast forward back to John chapter 20. And we find Jesus also in a garden. And even being mistaken, not entirely incorrectly, as a gardener. And I don't think it's accidental or reading too much into it. I believe that John is including this detail very much on purpose because the Scripture identifies Jesus as the last Adam, the second Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. And as the last Adam, here in John's Gospel, before his death, he was in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was saying, not my will but yours be done undoing the damage of the first Adam, who essentially said, not your will but mine. And now after his death for sins, Jesus rises from the dead and walks out again into another garden. Even supposed to be the garden. Seemingly to show that whereas the first Adam caused the world to be broken because of his rebellion, Jesus, the last Adam, will now cause the world to be made new because of his resurrection. This is the fundamental purpose of the resurrection that we need to, to realize and truly grasp. The, Jesus' resurrection is not just a promise for the future that one day the world will be made new. It is evidence that it has already begun. It's already started. Is that, is that really true? What, what does, let me ask you this, what does the risen... What does the risen and reigning Jesus say at the end of Revelation, the book of Revelation? He says, Behold, I am making all things new. That is present tense. It has already begun. And for another thing, let's do a little whole Bible thinking. Look back at verse 1. Um, and tell me when, when does John tell us that this resurrection took place? He says in verse 1, it took place, quote, on the first day of the week. On the first day of the week. Which is another way of saying, in scriptural terms, on the eighth day. Right? He, rode into, he rode into Jerusalem on a Sunday, and eight days later, he walked out of the, out of the tomb. So it's on the eighth day. And, and, and consider how common and how significant the eighth day is in Scripture. In Genesis, God judged the world through a flood, and the, and the waters prevailed on the earth for a long time. And when it finally receded and Noah stepped off the boat, he stepped off into a, a new creation, as it were. It, it's, it's, a new, it's just him and his family. It's like a new creation. If you read that account... It, it restates all, these, all this creation language about every creeping thing on the earth and all of that. It's like a new creation. And it says that he stepped off the boat on the first day of the week or the eighth day. It's a new creation. And in the Old Testament, 
God established his covenant with Abraham. What's the sign of that covenant? Circumcision. Now, not to be too crude about it, but circumcision was to be performed on the baby at how, how many days old? Eight days old. On the eighth day of his life. And again, not to be too crude, but it was, it was a sign placed on new life and a sign placed on the reproductive organ, right? Signifying new life to come, right? Not only signifying that one day through, through, through this line a Savior would come, but it's just signifying of new life. And in the Old Testament, in different feasts and festivals, in the midst of those feasts and festivals, solemn assemblies or, or, or other events were commanded to take place on the eighth day of that, right? Like the Feast of Tabernacles and things, signifying hope in the promised resurrection and the new creation. And here, Jesus fulfills that hope of being raised on the eighth day, the first day of the week. And this is not just an isolated thing, but he repeats down in verse 19, uh, that he, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. And then if you look in verse 26, he, he, re, he reveals himself to Thomas again. It says, eight days later, eight days later, this, this constant refrain on the eighth day, the eighth day, the eighth day, that's the day of a new creation. But you say, where in the world do we see this new creation beginning? Because the world still seems pretty broken today, as it ever has been. Where do we see Jesus making a new creation? Where do we see this new beginning? Here's the answer. In his people. In his people. What does Paul say of every believer in 2 Corinthians 5, 17? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. A new creation. The oldest past, the oldest past, the new has come. Every believer is a new creation. That's where the new creation that, that commenced with Jesus' resurrection has begun. And, and that too is signaled here in this passage in John 20. It is shown in the way that Jesus speaks to Mary Magdalene. Notice that when he first comes to her, in verse 15, he says to her, woman, again, we've talked about that. It's not woman, it's woman, you know, woman, why are you weeping? And she doesn't recognize him yet. But when he speaks to her again in verse 16, he calls her by name, Mary. And she immediately turns in recognition that it's Jesus. A.W. Pink beautifully says this about that verse. He said, before he addressed her by name, he first called her woman. In addressing her as woman, he spoke as God to his creature. In calling her Mary, he spoke as Savior to one of his redeemed. Jesus had said of his sheep in John 10 that they hear his voice and they follow when he calls. And when she heard him call her by name, she knew it was her Lord and Savior who was risen and standing victorious before her. So when Jesus steps out in that garden as the last Adam to, to restore all that was broken by the, by the first Adam, he begins with his people. 
He begins calling them by name whose salvation was now accomplished and the world was now a different place than it was before. He not only speaks to Mary personally like that, but notice carefully how he, how he tells her to go and talk to the other disciples. He says in verse seven, 17, excuse me, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my who brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. All throughout John's gospel, Jesus has called them disciples. He's called them servants. He's even called them friends. But now, risen from the dead with salvation complete in hand, he for the first time calls them brothers. Even though creation was all around and was still groaning because of sin, the world was now different because Christ who died was alive again, risen from the dead, the gardener of a new creation as the last Adam. He's making all things new, and he's beginning with his people. And that means you if you're trusting him this morning. At the first creation, God first made the place, Eden, and then he made the people to dwell in it. In the new creation, Christ is first creating the people. And at his return, he'll bring the place to go with it. So John has given us an eyewitness picture of the resurrection, the fact of it. And then, he, then, then a careful look at Jesus' interaction with Mary Magdalene. John showed us the, the, the massive purpose of the resurrection to begin a new creation. Quickly, we need to consider what we find here about another product of the resurrection, which we see in Jesus' interaction with his disciples after he appears to them. What I want us to see in, in, in Jesus' post-resurrection um, interaction with his disciples is not just how John tells the story of what happened, but also in doing so, he builds on the new creation theme that he just established with Mary Magdalene. Um, because notice again, that's, this is where he first repeats that this was the first day of the week in verse 19. Okay, remember, this is the eighth day. This is the new creation day. And, and how is this new creation starting? Through the, through the calling out of his people. What's the first thing he does? At the end of verse 9, he comes and he brings peace. Peace be with you, my people, my brothers. Then he reminds them in verse 20 on what basis they have that peace with him. He shows them the scars of his wounds for our sins, and the disciples were glad. I can imagine so. And having reminded them of, the, of the, the peace that they have with him because of his death and resurrection, he now commissions them. That is exactly, that is exactly what you would expect to find here. Having noted that in the new creation, the Lord is beginning this new creation through calling out his people, right, before he returns to bring the place to go with it, Remember Jesus promised in Matthew 16, I will build my church. But then remember how the book of Acts begins? The disciples now carried on all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So the apostles now carry on, meaning that he's now, Jesus is building his church, but now through his people, he's building his church through them. And, and, he, and he commissions them. It's not just through... Uh, well, I'm just saying, it, this is what you would expect to find here. It says in verse 21, As the Father has sent me, 
Even so, I'm sending you. The product of His resurrection for us who believe is not just peace with God through Him, but the commission we have from Him to go out in His name and make disciples. If you, if you were here Friday night for Secret Church, you heard a lot about that. If you were not here Friday night for Secret Church, find a way to watch it. And having, having commissioned them, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you, having commissioned them, notice carefully how he equips them for the task. He promises them two things. First, in verse 22, he promises them, them the empowering of his Holy Spirit as they go. Verse 22 is what D.A. Carson calls an acted parable. It's a symbolic action pointing forward to the, the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. That, the full outpouring of the Spirit would happen 50 days later in Acts chapter 2. But he symbolically here promises them that as you go, as I send you out in my name, as the Father sent me, I will empower you with my Holy Spirit. Secondly, he equips them with the gospel message. In verse 23, the gospel of the forgiveness of sins in Christ. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Is that some magical power that he's given to the disciples? No, that's the gospel that he gave to them. Because you can assure someone that their sins are forgiven if they truly repent and believe. And you can warn somebody, your sins are not forgiven. Your forgiveness is withheld if you refuse to repent and believe. They were given something we have, the gospel. And again, what is, what is John's purpose in placing this here? Not only to recount what happened, but to show the, the significance of it. John is showing us here that, that, that the resurrection happened and it inaugurated the new creation promised in Scripture, a new creation that begins with the salvation of his people until he comes again, bringing a new heavens and a new earth. And with that goal in mind, he commissions all of his followers, not just them, but us, with the power of the Holy Spirit as we go and with the gospel to build his church through the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. And in light of that commission, goodness, in light of that commission, John concludes this chapter, bearing his own witness to the hope of the gospel and the promise of the resurrection. The chapter ends with the story of Thomas, which I'll go ahead and say deserves an entire lesson, uh, as well as his stated purpose of the book. We don't have time to, to point out all that deserves to be highlighted in these final verses, but I simply want to point out uh, Jesus' patience with Thomas in the weakness of his faith, his patience with him, offering to meet him where he was. Though Thomas, did you notice, by the way, he never did reach out and touch the place of his wounds? He said, unless I do that, I will not believe passage never said that he did he said you know yeah unless he says unless i it was very forceful unless i see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails place my hand into his side i will never believe jesus showed him jesus offered he never did you take from that. Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. He does rebuke Thomas mildly for not believing his friends. 
when they told him about Jesus' resurrection, but he issues the promise of forgiveness and life to, to all of those who, who, even though they may not see with their eyes, have yet believed. And he says this, this is the whole reason for his writing the gospel. That's the promise of the resurrection. The forgiveness of sins to everyone who repents and believes. And it's not just forgiveness and life in his name now, but it's the assurance that a new creation has already begun. It's the assurance of hope now and heaven hereafter. And that's John 20. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, the scriptures. Thank you for these realities. Lord, I, we don't have time, Lord, to, to talk together about these things just yet. I, I pray that as we go, we would, we would think, what does this passage teach me? about you oh lord it teaches us so much about you that you keep your word that your word is true that you are merciful that you are powerful all powerful that you are good that you are great what does it teach about us lord you teach us so much about ourselves in this in this passage, we are Mary Magdalene. We are Peter and John. We are the, the other disciple. We are Thomas. But you, you are merciful to us as we are. What does it lead us to do? O oh Lord, your word clearly tells us that as the Father sent you, so you are sending us. And you've promised to equip us with your spirit and with your word. I pray that we would never neglect your word and always feel very deeply in our bones the need for the empowering of your spirit. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.